1 Corinthians chapter 15, page 1790 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. First Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 35 through verse 49. We hear the words of the Apostle Paul and our God speaking to us through his word. Let us give our attention to the reading of it. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. We consider Lord's Day 22 in the Heidelberg Catechism. Two questions and answers. Question 57 says this. How does the resurrection of the body comfort you? And the answer. Not only my soul will be taken immediately after this life to Christ its head. But even my very flesh, raised by the power of Christ, will be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. How does the article concerning life everlasting comfort you? Even as I already now experience in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, so after this life I will have perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no man has ever imagined, a blessedness in which to praise God eternally. We will consider mainly the first of those two questions and answers. Question and answer 57. Imagine then a young child who loves apple seeds. She loves 
apple seeds so much that she collects them. Every time her family buys apples at the grocery store, she forces everyone to put all of the seeds into a bowl in the kitchen, after which she washes them, dries them, and puts them in a jar in her room. She loves hearing stories about what apple seeds can do. Her dad and mom put her to bed at night and tell her a favorite story about the seed becoming an apple tree. She is fascinated by this idea. How can this be? How can these tiny seeds become trees? Surely it cannot be so. One day, her dad gets an idea for her birthday. He decides to clear out some room on the family's big farm property to plant 10 or 12 apple trees that will officially be hers. In order to make it special, however, he wants to use seeds from her collection. When the big planting day arrives, they go out into the yard. Once the the young girl realizes the full extent of what is happening, she is horrified. My seeds! I can't put them down there. I'll never see them again. The father calms her down and assures her that although it may be difficult now, it will have a wonderful outcome later. Each one of these seeds will go down into the ground and will bring forth a beautiful tree that gives hundreds of apples each year. That sounds fine as it is, but the girl knows better. How could anyone be so silly and gullible as to believe that? The seeds are being buried. It would be ludicrous to actually think that they can, by themselves, make their way back up through all of that dirt while developing into a tree. She knows all about these seeds. She has washed them and she looks after them, and none of them have ever moved an inch. The church in Corinth was facing similar arguments from people about the resurrection of the dead. How can you be so silly, people would say. When people die, we bury them. They go into the ground and their bodies waste away. They come to nothing. They will not be seen or heard from ever again. Paul sets out in this passage to teach And to assure the Corinthians that the resurrection is both a credible idea and that it is certain. It certainly will happen. It is credible because of the things that we see in the world all around us. All of which testify to God's creativity and his power as creator and sustainer. It is certain because Christ, our covenant head, has already been raised for us. And he is our assurance. In our Christian faith, as answer 57 of the Heidelberg Catechism points out to us, there are basically two stages to our resurrection after death. The first stage happens instantly. When the souls of those who belong to Christ are taken up to heaven and are taken into the glorious existence up there with our Lord until the last day. And the second stage happens At the last day, when all those bodies which have been laid in the ground and all those who are alive at Christ's coming will be changed in a moment and and they will be given new bodies which are fit for eternity. This passage from 1 Corinthians focuses exclusively on that second stage of the resurrection. And so we look together to God's word this evening to learn what he has for us in this beautiful passage. The first is that the resurrection is a credible idea. 
Paul begins by restating the question that has been raised, the one that people have been asking, and he shows that it is a bad question. There, in Paul's world, there is such thing as a bad question because this is not an honest question, but one that is meant to reveal how foolish it is to believe that bodies can be someday raised again. And so those who ask, how will the bodies be raised? How can they come forth? Paul turns this around on them. The ones who ask this very question prove the point that they are the foolish ones, as Paul says. In our translation it says, how foolish, but most other translations show that he is directing it at them. Oh foolish person. Paul uses the world of agriculture and specifically seeds to make his point. When you sow a seed, it descends into the ground, and in Paul's words, it dies. That is exactly the opposite of those who have objected to the idea of the resurrection. It's exactly the opposite of what they were thinking. The reason the resurrection of the body is a crazy idea to them is just because you put the bodies into the ground where they decompose. Paul says that this is what must happen in order for the resurrection to take place. He says, unless you put it down into the ground, nothing new can come forth. We do not bury a mature apple tree in the, into the ground. We do not dig a hole and cover all of it up. We bury a seed. You do not submerge a body of wheat all the way underground, but a seed, and what comes forth is a new body. The obvious objection of the non-believers was that exactly what you put into the ground is what will come out. That's the way that they were thinking. And what you put into the ground decays, it decomposes, so therefore the resurrection is untrue. But something different emerges out of the ground. That is the point that Paul makes. Something different comes forth, but how? Verse 38 states it plainly. God has determined for this process to take place so that his power and his creativity might be shown in what emerges out of the ground as the final product of what was placed in the ground. While there is a continuity between the seed and the final product, there is also real difference. This is plain enough to what we observe. One would never guess that just by looking at an apple seed, that an apple tree would come forth. The two things are extremely dissimilar. And yet all that is needed for an apple tree, all of the information and all of the potential for the roots, the stump, the leaves and the branches and the fruit, it's all contained in that little seed. The tree's ability to adapt to seasons and to shed its fruit and its leaves and to store up energy and then to burst forth with new energy in the next spring, all of that is in the seed as well. Paul's point is this, the bodies which are laid in the ground after people die are not the bodies that will be. There is an organic relationship between the two. But the final product is something that you would not guess if you had only the seed. The question is clear. Who do you think is the one who makes all of this happen? Is it not God? Is he not the one who causes the tree to pop up out of the ground and to make it grow? 
even though it is what we think of as completely a natural process, that does not negate the fact that God's power and his creativity is at work in all of it. Paul backs up this claim by telling the Corinthians, politely and gently, to open their eyes. That's the first thing he is saying to them. Open your eyes. How do you know that God is capable of this kind of creativity? Look around. Look at the diversity of creation. Is a dolphin like a horse? Is an octopus like a tiger? God brings forth and creates all kinds of different creatures. And he does so with ease, for he is God. All of the diversity we see in the world is a foreshadowing of the resurrection. That's what it's pointing to. When we look around into the world and we see all of the different things that God has created, it's a pointing forward and a foreshadowing of the new creation which we will enter at the last day. Because it assures us that God is powerful enough to create anything that he wants To bring forth life out of nothing. To create a world with diversity. Paul next moves into discussing the idea of glory. It's the word that's translated in in our passage, splendor. But he uses this to set up his final appeal for proving the resurrection of the dead. Verse 40 we read of splendor which I mentioned is normally translated glory. But it says this, The glory of the heavenly bodies is of one kind. The glory of the earthly is of another. In other words, Paul is continuing his discussion around the diversity within creation, but he focuses on this idea of splendor or glory. The glory of heavenly things is different than the glory of the earthly things. He also says in verse 41, That the glory of the heavenly things differs from each other. The sun, the moon, and the stars each have their own glory. Paul is borrowing language here from a very famous psalm. A psalm actually that we sang last week, Psalm 8. The psalm mentions beasts, birds, fish, the moon, the stars, and of course has man at the center of its view all along. And so you see how Paul is borrowing the vocabulary from Psalm 8. Beasts, birds, fish, moon, stars, and man. It is man that has, in his creation, in his created state, been crowned with glory and honor. But it is a glory and an honor of a certain degree. Man does not have the glory of a heavenly body. Man has the glory of an earthly body. It is for this reason that the writer of the psalm is alarmed that God still cares for human beings when he takes notice of the glory of the heavens. When I look into your heavens and I consider the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, I think to myself, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? The glory of the earthly things causes the, the, the heavenly things, causes the psalmist to say, why would you care or take notice of that which is earthly? And this causes the psalmist to break forth in praise. How majestic is your name in all of the earth? So perhaps you say, I do not see how that connects or helps to prove the resurrection of the dead. Paul anticipates that question and he transitions to the main point of his argument in verses 42 through 49. 
He uses all of the things he has used up to this point, the seed analogy, the variety in creation and the degrees of glory between earthly and heavenly bodies. And so turn with me to this last section of the passage, verses 42 through 49, where Paul speaks of the resurrection of the dead. Paul shines in these last seven verses. It is perhaps the most beautiful prose in all of the New Testament. It's also the crown jewel of Christian doctrine. The, the, very, the very pinnacle of what we believe. It's not so much an argument against those who would dispute the empty tomb. There are many people out in the world, scholars, uh, great and wonderful scholars who are arguing on behalf of the church's belief that uh, the, the empty tomb and the resurrection of Christ is really an indisputable fact of history and they do a wonderful job doing that and I appreciate all of that very much and I love reading things on that, but that is not what Paul is doing here. For Paul assumes that Christ rose again from the dead. It's fairly obvious to Paul, that doubting the resurrection is silly. For one, he saw the resurrected Christ. And he has spoken with many people who have seen the resurrected Christ with their own eyes. It's an indisputable fact. This section, however, focuses on the resurrection being a certainty. It certainly will happen through the eyes of faith. It is credible because of the variety and the difference that we see in creation. But it is also certain. Paul says to his audience that the resurrection of the dead is as certain as death itself. That's what he's really doing. He's making an appeal through what we see, and he's saying, just as you know that people die, that is how certain you can be that the resurrection will happen. The center of this seven-verse discussion is verse 45, and it becomes the most important verse to understanding this entire passage. So look down with me at verse 45. 45, which says this. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. I mentioned from time to time the idea of Christ as the last Adam or the second Adam. And here is one place where Paul uses this very idea. After Paul says, it is written, and of course that is a way to introduce scripture, he has two phrases The first one is a quote from Genesis 2, 7. The first man, Adam, became a living being. But the second phrase is not a quote from elsewhere. And yet, the introduction, it is written, applies just as much to that phrase as what stands before it. So what's happening here is Paul is consciously putting his own writing on par with Scripture. He knows that what he is writing is authoritative to God's people. So what does he say about the last Adam? He says that he became a life-giving spirit. The word for life-giving has already shown up in this passage before. It is in verse 36, where Paul is discussing the idea of a seed going into the ground, and God gives it a new body in what sprouts up out of the ground. And so the point is that Christ, the God-man, becomes the divine, living, and resurrected being who gives life to all of his offspring. As my friend has put it, not my words, but his. Christ takes the role of God as body-giver. That is what Christ does. He is a life-giving spirit. Perhaps this sounds like a leap within Paul's argument. 
But what he, what he is saying is that it is all about the idea of representation. Someone else representing a group of people and what that person gains or merits will be granted to all of the people that he represents. It is as certain as the death which we all observe, experience, and know to be true. Verse 45 speaks of Adam as he was created. He was created as a living being. What kind of body did Adam have at creation? It was a natural body, which is to say a perishable body. It does not mean that Adam's body was bad, but only limited. It means that Adam's body belonged to this age and not the age of eternity. Adam would not have died before he sinned and fell. But the fact that he was capable of sinning and failing and falling shows us the perishability of his body. Adam was in a state of being able to sin and able not to sin. After he fell... Sin and death comes front and center to where the human experience now is where we sharply feel the perishability and the natural state of our bodies. We're given to decay. We're we're, we're given over to being perishable. And we sharply feel that because of the failure of Adam. We inherit from him our natural, perishable, earthly bodies. Adam sinned, fell, and died, and we all die as he did. But just as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Just as we inherited our bondage to decay and our death from Adam, so we inherit the imperishability of the heavenly body of Jesus. He is a life-giving spirit. Spirit here does not mean something that is not physical or material. It means something that belongs to the heavenly order. Paul will say that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So what he's saying is that the body that comes forth, the body that Christ gives and that he gives to all of his offspring is a body that is not flesh and blood, that belongs to the new creation. Paul's case is simple. He builds it out from the the world that we observe. It's impossible for us to have anything but the perishable natural bodies that we have at birth. And we know that this is the case. We feel ourselves growing up and developing. And then we feel ourselves on the other side of development. When beauty and strength starts to fade. We all feel this day after day. The toll of life. That is taken on our bodies. And that is why he says in verse 44. If there is a natural body. There is also a spiritual body. It is as certain as death itself. It is a credible idea. Because we observe it in the world. A seed is buried. And it is raised with a new body. It is certain because Christ our Savior. Has already been given. A heavenly and a spiritual body. The same kind which he will give to all those who are his. This is the logically tight and academic argument of Paul. It's sufficient to shut down those who mock the idea of the resurrection, but that is not the chief reason why it is here for us in the scriptures. It's wonderful to see how reason and science bear witness to the power of God, 
and bear witness to the resurrection. But this was given for our comfort and to strengthen our assurance. And so let us consider that as we close this evening. Earlier in this chapter, Paul has stated with utmost simplicity what the gospel message is. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He died for whom? He died for us. He took on the first Adam's natural body so that he may live a perfect life and die on our behalf. Just as a seed is put into the ground, so Christ was buried with a perishable body. He was buried in weakness and was raised with an imperishable body in power. He did this as part of God's eternal plan to save us. It was God's eternal plan to save us through Christ. And that's why Paul connects the creation of Adam in this passage to the new creation which Christ earns for his people. Many of us have no problem looking around, seeing this world and seeing the creative power of God But Paul tells us that the reason the world was created was so that he could make for himself a people who are redeemed and fit for eternity. There is nothing more sure. There is nothing more sure than God's sovereign plan. And God's sovereign plan was not only to create Adam and to create the world, but also to send Christ to be and to become a life-giving spirit. The resurrection is as cemented into God's sovereign plan as creation. The creation, in fact, happened for the resurrection. We were created to be with God forever. And even if Adam had not sinned, he would have been transformed and given a spiritual and imperishable body. And so we cannot ignore the truth of the resurrection in our spiritual lives. If we say, I, I, I just can't, I can't think about that or I can't think about how God is going to do that. We cannot do that for it is the very center of where our assurance of God's love grows. He will not allow us to languish in these bodies forever. For when they are laid to rest in the ground, he will bring forth new bodies that are fit for eternity, which are not subject to decay and are not dependent on nourishment to keep going and do not need sleep. It will be a body that is the reward of righteousness, but not the righteousness of our own, but the righteousness of this last Adam. He came to bear the curse of the man of dust so that we would share in the new creation life of Jesus Christ. He was sown into the earth after his perishable body died. Christ was buried. But though dead, he had passed the test. And God raised him up with a body from heaven. And he is in heaven now. And it is from there that our new creation bodies will come. This truth is as sure as the mortality which we now experience. The resurrection seems hard to believe for many. Perhaps just as hard as it is for a young child to believe that her beloved apple seeds will be buried deep into the ground and will spring forth with a new body, a beautiful fruit-bearing tree. This is why Paul says that this fallen and death-filled order of things now does not give us a reason to doubt the resurrection of the dead. 
It gives us a reason to be assured of its truthfulness. The order of decay, the order of death, the order of sin, the order of suffering does not speak against the certainty of the resurrection. It speaks for it. For just as we have borne the likeness of the man from the earth, so also we shall bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, the last Adam, the righteous one, the man who came to bear the curse of the man of dust so that he might die for our sins, that he might be buried, and that he might be raised again. We look forward to the day when from him, the life-giving spirit, we will receive our eternal and heavenly and spiritual and imperishable bodies, that we may be with you forever and worship you in full truth, that your dwelling place may be with us once and for all. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We sing together verses 1, 2, and 5 of number 200.